Warning, today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now podcast. I am your host, Rigor. In this series of special Then Is Now episodes, 13 Days of Hallowtober, we are exploring what are widely regarded as the scariest movies of all time. Joining me today is filmmaker Chris Esper, who is based out of Attleboro, Massachusetts. He's made several short films, including Imposter, Yesteryear, Bent, The Deja Viewers, and Undatement Center. And currently, he owns and operates a production company called Stories in Motion, where he continues to create a variety of projects. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me back. Excellent, excellent. So today, we're going to discuss Night of the Living Dead from 1968. Welcome to a night of total terror. Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. of the living dead. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. Night. Of the living dead. Siblings Barbara and Johnny drive to a cemetery in rural Pennsylvania to visit their father's grave. As they're leaving, a strange man kills Johnny and viciously attacks Barbara. She flees and attempts to take shelter in a farmhouse, but finds the woman who lived there dead and half-eaten. She sees a multiplying number of strange ghouls led by the man from the cemetery approaching the house. 
A man named Ben arrives, secures the farmhouse by boarding up the windows and doors, and drives away the ghouls with a lever-action rifle that he finds in the closet and with fire, which he previously discovered that the ghouls fear. Barbara, in a somewhat catatonic state from shock, is surprised when a couple, Harry and Helen Cooper, emerge from the cellar. They'd been taking shelter there with their young daughter Karen after a group of the same monsters overturned their car and bit Karen, leaving her seriously ill. Also sheltering there are Tom and Judy, a teenage couple who came to the house after hearing an emergency broadcast about a series of brutal killings. Tom aids Ben in securing the farmhouse while Harry angrily protests that it's unsafe before returning to the cellar, which he believes is much safer. Ghouls continue to besiege the farmhouse in ever-increasing numbers. The group must spend the night fighting against the horde of zombies outside in order to survive. So, Chris, tell me about um, your initial impression of this film and, and when you first saw it. Mm, I think I first saw it, I, I want to say I first saw it um, uh, in my late teens, early 20s. Um, I can't remember how I saw it. I want to say I might have rented a copy somewhere, but... Um, I I think the first time I saw it, I was left in a bit of shock, uh, particularly by the ending. Um, but uh, and uh, I think and uh, I think it was like one of the first uh, zombie films I've seen. So I, I knew going in that this sort of set the standard for that for that kind of thing. And uh, I remember being uh, very impressed by it. That it wasn't uh, what I thought it was going to be. I think uh, I think when I first heard about it, I was expecting some kind of like B picture, which I mean, in a lot of ways, it was, but. Uh, it didn't like go into the tropes or didn't have any of that sort of uh, campiness. It actually had substance to it, which I remember being kind of a, 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 I was being, I was, you know, very impressed by that. Nice. Yeah. I think as a kid, I'd heard of it uh, more. So I'd heard about how shocking Dawn of the Dead was because I had friends whose older siblings had seen the film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a kid, I was always reading monster magazines and, and that sort of thing and, you know, catching the late night horror movies and stuff. So I knew something about it and I knew there was a connection to Dawn of the Dead. But I think uh, for me, I had rented it at the advent of, uh, you know, VHS tapes when they first had stores where you could rent videotapes. That was sure. probably my first experience seeing the film because, mm -hmm. like I said, I had been exploring films that I had heard or read about, but um, but I hadn't seen. So... That I remember that really scared me when I was younger. I was probably saw it like at age ten or twelve or something, and I think to this day, even watching it recently, it's I find it terrifying. <laughs> oh no, it is. Um, I haven't having rewatched it recently myself. Um, I was actually um, amazed um, at how terrifying it was because um, last time I saw it, I don't remember feeling that sort of dread and terror, but uh, seeing it again. Um, certainly came through, um, you know, and especially when you, when you study it more uh, from a filmmaker's perspective, yeah, it is uh, pretty terrifying. Yes, and that that bleak ending is really, I think that that sort of sets off because this was 1968, and I think this sets off a sort of a trend in movies in the 70s that have bleak endings. Oh yeah, yeah, like with, with Race with the Devil and mm -hmm. several others. Now, this film's directed by George Romero, who is considered the father of the modern zombie film. There had been zombie films in the past, like uh, I Walked with a Zombie and White Zombie with Bela Lugosi. But those were different. Those were Haitian zombies that were turned... They weren't undead. They were just, you know, uh, in a strange mental state because of chemicals they were given. Right. But um, Romero kind of took that concept and made it his own. 
And uh, some of his films include Dawn of the Dead, which is the sequel to Night, mm-hmm. Day of the Dead, which is the third in the trilogy, as well as a bunch of others uh, that are pretty popular among horror fans called, such as The Crazies, Martin, Creepshow, uh, Stephen King's Monkey Shines, as well as The Dark Half, uh, Bruiser. And then he did a follow-up zombie trilogy with Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, and Survival of the Dead. Yes. And I have to say, I, I like all of his dead movies. I think um, oh, yeah. perhaps... Day of the Dead to me is the weakest of the six, mm-hmm. but um, maybe maybe that and Survival of the Dead are probably you know neck and neck. But I, I loved what I loved about well, first of all, I loved Land of the Dead because that was just well done. Uh, Diary of the Dead to me, what it did for me was I hate uh, found footage films. Yes, because I get nauseous in them. I get car sick. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and in in that movie. Romero knew when to put the camera down, when to use a security camera. It wasn't all shaky cam from beginning to end, and that made me really enjoy the film. Right. Uh, yeah, I know. I I definitely saw day. Uh, I definitely saw Day of the Dead. I definitely saw uh, Dawn of the Dead. The uh, I can't recall if I seen the um, his his uh, other trilogy. Um, I may have seen Land, but yeah, those three, those later three, I don't recall as well as I do uh, the first three. But um, but yeah, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, Land has yeah. Land has the guy from The Mentalist, the guy that played The Mentalist, and it's got Dennis Hopper yep. and John Leguizamo in it. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, I gotta check that out. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I do have to check. I mean, I definitely saw. I actually saw Monkey Shines um, last year. I was in. Uh, this is very strange. I was in New Orleans uh, doing a show, uh, filming uh, filming a show, and uh, it was one evening. I was so tired. I had nothing to watch, uh, nothing to do really, and then. Uh, uh, I'm in my Airbnb. I'm just scrolling through the on-demand thing. There's a bunch of free movies, and I'm like, I see Monkey Shines, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, wait, a minute, I haven't seen this. Put it's one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. Strange, <laughs> just beyond, <laughs> yeah, beyond, yeah. Be- beyond belief. Strange, <laughs> definitely, definitely. I think I saw that in the theater with my mother. It was just like because we had to go see it. It was Stephen King and George Romero. Yeah, you just can't, you know. <laughs> yeah. So. Getting back to Night of the Living Dead, uh, the film had uh, something like a $114,000 budget. It was shot outside Pittsburgh, um, where it premiered on October 1st in 68, and it grossed $12 million domestically and $18 million internationally, which is about 250 times its budget. So it's not only was a hit in and of its own right, it became, you know, a, a cult classic. Sure. And let's see, it was, I believe Romero and his buddies, so this was sort of, they were they were already a group to begin with that made this film. It wasn't like he just pulled together a team because they made commercials yes. in Pittsburgh. Well, yeah, that, that, that's one of the interesting pieces of trivia with this movie um, is, yeah, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he and his, um, his team have been doing um, uh, commercials and other industrial films and projects. And one of, uh, one of the things that, uh, <laughs> That George Romero was doing at the time was he was making films for Mister Rogers' Neighborhood, and uh, oh, that's right. Yes, and uh, a lot of the money that he made from that one went into making uh, this movie, and and uh, I think Fred Rogers actually saw it. He he had quite the reaction to it, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Yes. It's funny because he did a whole uh, an episode about uh, they went to the set of The Incredible Hulk. Yes, showed you how the makeup was that's done right. so kids wouldn't yeah. be scared. He should have done that with uh, Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> oh yeah, without a doubt. Yep. <laughs> but uh, but yeah I, yeah so yeah so he was like kind of doing um, that sort of thing uh, before moving on to um, to uh, uh, to making this movie and um, 
it's funny when uh, when you when you think about independent filmmaking uh, and you watch this movie, it's kind of nice to see some of those not mistakes, but like but like little like low budget things that you recognize and it kind of resonates with you as a independent filmmaker because you're like, yeah, no, it um, you know, there's there's that sort of independent feel to it that I really enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just so well shot and well composed. Yes. All the scenes are are visually well composed, you mm-hmm. know. It doesn't it, from its time, it doesn't have that typical low budget schlocky film kind of feel to it. Right. it. It looks like everything was done on purpose. Yes. Yeah. Everything it, you see on camera. Yes. Um in particular the opening scene um at the cemetery uh, having rewatched it recently, I was actually impressed with how well it was shot. Particularly, you know, the shots of the car of the car coming down the road, uh, those beautiful wide shots that he had composed, and then of course, you know, the um, the lighting in the cemetery and that sort of thing. Uh, all that just comes together really well, and and of course the suspense that builds up when when we get our first kill in the movie, and it's shocking. Right, it is shocking, and the, he does a good job of like he gets right into the action. Yes. Within what is it, like the first ten minutes is is when the zombie starts to attack Barbara right. and and Johnny, and it just keeps going from there and it doesn't let go of you. It, it, the The film itself doesn't necessarily need to waste time giving us backstory on the characters. Yeah. We kind of get their personalities almost immediately, and then it's it's a question of can they work together or not to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where you know he didn't he didn't he didn't need to do any kind of exposition or any kind of expository dialogue. You just like it, it didn't matter where these characters came from. You just uh, you know like you got like glimpses, and then you know the the movie just runs with it, and then you end up rooting for these people because of that. And and that's what's good about this film too is because of the 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 fact that there are so many characters trapped in this one place. At least you, any audience member can identify with at least one of these characters mm-hmm. in the movie, mm-hmm. and there's it's not like a group of teenagers and the, you can't stand any of them. Yes, and so who cares if they all get killed off? Mm-hmm. You know, in this, you kind of want them all to survive. You know, maybe except for um, what's his name, Harry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but now uh, this movie was co-written by John Russo, who co-wrote it with. George Romero. He's an internationally known author. In fact, I have one of his books on on how to make a low-budget film. It's oh, no pretty kidding. good. I haven't read that. Yeah. That's great. I've had that on my show. I don't have the title handy, but um, yeah, it's a really good book as well as, um, you know, like I said, he co-wrote this film and his, he's got a, a, quite a few screen credits. He's an internationally known author, but he's got a few screen credits and the one that really stands out to me is that he wrote Return of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. which actually references this movie in that film, too, which I thought was really cool. Right. We'll return to 13 Days of Hallowtober after these messages. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit... We have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made 
before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love, a look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil, and our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Hey folks. I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts, podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, PodParadise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodServe's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcasts on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit 
MonsterKidRadio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio! All right, now our cast, uh, I'm going to say that most of the cast don't have a whole bunch of credits. Dwayne Jones plays Ben. Yep. And while he didn't do too many films, the one that I think he's uh, most remembered for besides this film would be Ganja and Hess, which is a, a weird vampirish kind of tale. I don't think I saw that. It's 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 definitely offbeat. It's not um it doesn't hold up like well, it holds up as a film, but it's it's way more trippy and bizarre like Lenny Living Dead is a little more straightforward right yeah and Ganja and Hess is a little bit more trippy so if you have to be able to accept that fact when right you're the film. yeah but he's very good in it mm-hmm. as well it's too bad he didn't go on to do more films then we've got Judith O'Day as Barbara Carl Hardman as Harry Cooper Marilyn Eastman as Helen Cooper Keith Wayne as Tom and Judith Riley as Judy now personally I think they all did a great job although I think Judy wasn't that great of an actress so yeah Judith Riley. No. <laughs> <laughs> and even when Barbara it, I've heard arguments that she's terrible in it too but I think she plays it well she's she she basically loses her mind or she at least goes temporarily insane and I think she plays that very well I I thought so too um I mean I, I get that argument as well. I mean, I think the best actor in the movie is um, uh, the actor that plays Ben. Um, you know, I thought he was... Yeah, Dwayne Jones. Yeah. Yeah, he's really good. But but you know what? It it, it doesn't take away from the film. No. It, it actually... Sometimes, you know, when I, I've watched this movie so many times, but sometimes on certain viewings, I've... It, they just feel like real people to me mm-hmm. rather than actors playing characters. Yeah, no, and, and that's that's sort of... Um, that's sort of what works about it. Um even some of the shooting, um, it uh, the, some of the shooting of it comes off as more. I don't want to say documentary esque, but there's more of a it has more of a reality to it um, than than it does a cinematic uh, look. Um, and I think the actors being real people, or uh, you know, that sort of uh, adds to that reality that you're sort of you're in on it with them because of that reality base that it has. Right. And you know, it's funny, it didn't occur to me till you just said that the way it it seems realistic, what really my favorite parts of the movie and what works for me and and I just realized based on what you said that that's probably because it was realistic are the news the newscasts. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And the news people talking about what's going on, it's like it's very believable. They do those so well. Oh yeah, no they do. And uh well, and also too, like the way some of the scenes in the um, in the house uh, are shot, you know, it just uh, again, there's just a certain reality to it, and also um, the fact that the movie primarily takes place in that home is another another way to feel that entrapment uh, that the characters are feeling. So, no, I think all that just gives it it gives it a fresh feel to it that we really didn't quite see in movies that were made before this one. Right, exactly. Again, a movie that sort of 
pushes the bar and inspires people. Now, now, like you had said, when we talked about Psycho, that Hitchcock inspired John Carpenter, I think this film inspired Sam Raimi. Without a doubt, absolutely. Um, and again, uh, we wouldn't have Sam Raimi if we didn't have uh, uh, George Romero. So, you know, it, uh, uh, it's very cyclical the way these things happen. Right, right. And it's interesting, too, because sometimes... Um, he he manages to make you know, George Romero manages to make the um, the whole situation work, even though it's you know bleak, and these people are trapped in this house. And it's funny because it's the kind of movie that you when you watch it, you think about what would you do in this situation. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, I would take all the supplies and everything, go to the second floor, and then rip the stairs out. Oh yeah. Then they couldn't get to you, and if you had to get out, you could jump out the window. Right. Yes. And. Uh... You know, and of course, I'd be remiss if uh, if, I, uh, if we didn't talk about uh, you know the um, the whole zombie movie cliche that sort of got started with this, um, the concept of uh, of a one of the characters having to shoot or kill uh, one another uh, character because they've been infected by this. I mean, now it's such a trope these days. Right. It's such a trope. Yeah. But even though going into this movie, you're aware of that trope, uh, particularly people who haven't seen the movie before, but they know about other zombie movies it somehow still works because it just it's done in a way that is because it was fresh for the time it has a lot more emotional weight to it than uh than than what we see now when movies that attempt to do that whole thing yeah and i think in a lot of these films um there's been a lot of uh people have over the years have read into it a lot of social things yeah about it, like, like for example, having Dwayne Jones be the first black actor to play a main character, mm-hmm. which I think, according to Romero, it was he was just the best actor for the part. Yes, yeah. They weren't specifically looking for that, Ex- you know? Yep, exactly. Yep, Romero's got on record to say that, yeah, no, it had nothing to do with him being um, him being uh, of a different race. Uh, he just happened to be the uh, the best actor for uh, for the movie, but... Uh, but because of that, uh, of that sort of accidental casting, if you will, um, and and the time in which this movie came out, it was a movie. It was in. A, it was a movie that was in the right place at the right time. Absolutely, and it's a good tale of humanity too. It's it it's, is. Uh, when when faced with a horrible situation, you either rise above it or you come unglued. And some of the characters in the movie did did both. Some characters rose above it, and some characters came unglued. Right, and you know it's interesting. I le- when I watched this movie. I haven't watched this movie recently to, to talk to you about this. Um, this this movie feels right now with the with everything going on in the world right now more timely than ever before, ever. Right. So I just want to finish off the cast list here. We've got one more person that needs mention. Um, was a sort of a cameo, right? By uh, Pitts, Pittsburgh horror TV host Bill Cardilli, who was also known as Chili Billy, uh, the horror TV host, yep. and he plays the field reporter. In the uh, and he plays himself basically yeah, in it, yeah. <laughs> which I I think if uh, oh man, I, first of all I never really actually got to see any Chili Billy shows, uh, obviously because I didn't live in Pittsburgh. But yeah, um, it must have been so cool for Romero, who probably did watch the show when he was younger and was must have been so excited to get Chili Billy in the movie, yeah, even for a camera. I, I'm sure, yeah, and uh, I'm sure for those that were um, that were in that area. Um, and you know, and and watch the show. I'm sure that was like that was like one of those inspired casting uh, choices where that was like sort of not the star that was gonna sell it, but but sort of I guess sort of like the name that would uh, that would help that would help it to to get to more audiences. Right. Exactly. Now, what's interesting too is um, 
this movie's been heavily criticized for explicit gore, but it's really not that it's gory. Really not, I mean, there's no. the scene. No, there's the scene where uh, Judy and and Tom get blown up in the truck, and so the zombies are having barbecue, and that's pretty pretty gruesome. Yeah, and you know the dead body in the house is kind of is gruesome, but I don't remember. Like I've seen far worse or far more gorier films oh, than yeah. this one, and I think its reputation precedes it. Yeah, and uh, you know, you know, as we talked about Psycho as well, uh, both movies, uh, this one and also Psycho, they're both pretty tame by today's standards. They're really not. They're really, right. they're really not gory, even though their reputation is of being, you know, gory uh, in their own right. And that's one of the things too, as I've been trying to explore, is is to just sort of make sure that these movies are. When you first watch them, like say now, mm-hmm. when you first watch one of these films, you have to watch them with the understanding of the time in which they were released. Because even Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's almost hardly any blood in that movie. Sure. And you walk away from it thinking you saw far more than you actually did with the title alone. Right. Well, you know? well, and again, that, that goes back to very effective filmmaking. Uh, the It's more the suggestion of violence, the suggestion of sexuality in the case of Psycho, let's say, the suggestion of, you know, all these things that we're talking about because that's what was, you know, sort of available for the time and uh, it was really up to the imagination of the filmmakers to really bring that out. And uh, again, it's a huge advantage when when you're faced with that. Right. I'd love to know where George Romero got the concept of of this version of a zombie because... Mm -hmm. It's so now ingrained in our culture. Yeah. I mean, yes, you get the arguments between the fast zombies and the slow-moving zombies, oh, sure. which to me, yeah. while fast zombie movies are fun and can be scary, I think slow-moving zombies, in my brain, make more logical sense because they're fighting against rigor mortis. That's kind of where I stand as well. I've, I never really understood the uh, the, the concept of the, of the fast zombie. Um, I always found the slow ones to be... Uh, um, to be more true because of what you just said of you know what you know what you know whatever their bodies are fighting uh in that moment that and also it just adds more suspense right one thing that adds to the atmosphere of this film too and i was actually shocked to find out that the music i was looking up to who the mu- who composed the music for it it was mainly stock music that they'd got is that right i don't think i've wow. ever heard this music anywhere yeah wow and it, it, there's like a, a credit there's like a list of like maybe 10 people that are uncredited in this movie. No kidding. Wow. And all of their their music was basically stock music. Wow. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And this was one of those movies where you know it was very much a um, uh, very much a team effort. I mean, George Romero did the shooting and the editing um, himself. For example, like he he didn't have a dedicated right. you know director of photography or or a um, dedicated uh, uh, editor. You know, did all that himself. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, the, thereby just shows you you know his talent. Yeah. Um, not only in the storytelling, but in the overall making of the movie. And I, th- I think sometimes that's one of the best ways a movie is made is mm-hmm. when the person has the vision and they can control everything. I think even Robert Rodriguez does the same thing. He he doesn't often use a cinematographer. He's behind the camera himself. Yes. And then he's even editing them himself. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because when I when I was in film school, I saw one of um, one of Robert Rodriguez's um, ten minute film school things, and I remember watching it and thinking, you know, this is very much like George Romero because he would do the same thing, do his own shooting, do his own. Uh, editing and you know shoot on a shoestring budget but still get the results that uh, still get the result that he wants right right now one other person to mention about that was associated with this film would be tom savini yes who 
helped uh basically did all the special effects the the zombie makeup and mm-hmm. the gore effects and he's another one that we could seriously do a whole show on him just sit down and, and talk about tom savini and his right. work. i i remember when i met him once uh there's a place in massachusetts called spooky world yep and he was like in the final building that you go into they had guests there it was him and um the, the guy that was the lead from american world in london whose name escapes me at the moment but anyways I'm with my wife and we're walking up and I'm going to get Tom Savini's autograph. And then all of a sudden I felt like I was, you know, six years old standing there holding the, <laughs> the picture in my hand, waiting for an autograph. <laughs> it's like, that's awesome. Oh my God, it's yeah. Tom Savini. Yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah. But, no, he did. I believe he directed the remake of this movie. Am I, is that right? I yes, I think so. Let me, yeah, let me look actually. Cause Which I, John I Russo wrote also. Right. Um, okay. Yep. I don't. That think was I, in 1990. 19. Yep. Yep. He did. And uh, yeah, I actually did not see that one. But um, but uh, yeah, I know there there have been several. Well, well, not remakes, but like there have been, you know, several versions of this movie from the remake to the re-release. Um, and uh, I remember I was fooled one time. I went to go buy a copy of this movie at a at a movie stop, uh, which uh, which is no longer uh, running. But um, found a copy of this. 10 bucks i'm like i'm like i'm like you know special features the whole nine yards i'm like i'm like oh great oh you know i've been wanting to own a copy i go home i pop in night living dead and it's not the one i want it has like all the additional reshoots that were done i was i was so mad i was like no no this is not what i wanted is that the one with sid haig yes i haven't seen that one <laughs> well, it, well, I, well, well, no, well, no. It's like uh, there, there, there was like there was like new additional footage added to the 1968 film, and you could tell where the cuts were. And it was just like I was like, no, what is this? Oh, that's bad. Is that is that the one where they got the the guy that played the original the first ghoul to come I, back and reprise y- the role? Yes, yes. Okay, yep. Okay, that's the one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh that's just why do they? And there's a colorized version too, I think, which is not even needed. <laughs> it's just uh, right. <laughs> just it defeats the whole purpose of the film yeah which this is yet another movie where uh, you know romero is able to use the the shadows to his advantage yeah. in this film and black and white just is so good in so many instances it's so appropriate yeah it's great the the remake is not bad i am not a fan of remakes there are a handful that i think are, are pretty good like, all right, for example, mm-hmm. John Carpenter's The Thing, you could really sure. say it's a reimagining of the original story, sure. not a remake of yep. the original movie. But um, but the remake of this movie is, I remember I saw it in the theater and I was pleasantly surprised. I enjoyed it. I think it was, was it 1990. And um, I think, I haven't seen it in a long time, so I, I, I'd have to watch it again. But I, I do remember watching it quite a few times after that. and Because re- what they do is, they it's essentially the same story, but they've got better actors in in it. Uh, Tony Todd plays mm-hmm. the Ben part, and they expand some of the characters' roles, including Barbara. Um, her character kind of makes a transformation in the film and actually becomes a strong female lead in the oh, movie, wow. which is yeah. It's for that alone, it's worth it. It's um, oh my God, I'm doing terrible today, remembering names. But she was the telepath chick on Babylon Five. Really, she was part of the, wow. the telepath group. I can't think of her name. It'll it'll come to me probably by the end of the show. But anyways, yeah. So the the remake is worth looking at. Uh, but I think you really should see the the original first because oh yeah, without a doubt. Is, yeah, I haven't I haven't historical. seen the re- yeah I haven't seen the remake. But uh, yeah, the original I I do watch you know every once in a while along with 
you know, uh, along with Dawn of the Dead, which I think is uh, just as good, if not a little better than the original. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dawn of the Dead is a whole different animal, but it just yes. works. I, I just love that movie. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, an, it, it's a near perfect movie, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to talk about that sometime. Mm-hmm. So, um, first of all, uh, what are your final thoughts on this film, and would you consider it one of the scariest films of all time? I. Uh, yeah, I would actually. Um, there, there's something every time I watch it. There's something fresh about it, even though I've seen it, you know, a handful of times. Um, and uh, you know, I always go into it with uh, always seeing something new. I think this time around, the social commentary stuff really popped into my head. This time around, gi- uh, given what's going on in the world right now, but uh, I think I think even just in general as a movie, it, uh, it yeah, it still stands on its own. Absolutely. And would you, um, like, I, I still find it scary myself, yes. I, especially if I put it on at night and I'm alone and, and watching it. It's, it's really terrifying. You would mention that you don't really get scared at movies um, at one point. And mm-hmm. I, I, I do. I don't emote, like, I don't cry at movies, but I get scared. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> Even if all. I know the jump scare is coming, I, get, I jump. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, My yeah, son I think- always makes fun of me for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think it really depends for me on what uh, um, in what context. I mean, I find jump scares work for me if I'm sitting in the movie theater with the you know with the you know with the sound blaring and you know the big picture right. on the screen. You know, I, I think that's different on your television. Yeah, it's not the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, would you recommend this to a younger audience, especially considering the fact that we've been inundated with zombie movies and TV shows and all that stuff? I definitely would recommend this because I think uh, again, going back to the source of where where this genre really got started, um, you know, and really came into popularity. This is like you know, this is a must see because of the way it's done. You know, unlike most of the zombie movies today, like this is done in a way that's uh, you know, it, it, it's very um, what's the word I'm looking for. It's just really well done, uh, uh, and it's um, in the way it was made, and that's again because of the limitations from budget budgetary constrictions to the time period, whatever. It's it's one to see for those reasons. Right, absolutely, and it's effective. It's very effective. It is in, very in effective. What it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, Chris, where can our audience find you online? Oh, so uh, uh, my website is storiesmotion.com, and there you can find all my uh, films that I'm working on and other uh, various projects. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram under Stories in Motion. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Chris. We'll be talking to you again soon. Yeah, take care. Well, we hope you enjoyed this special edition episode of Then Is Now called 13 Days of Hallotober. If you want to chime in on today's show, please send us an email at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. And you can also check out our website, havenpodcasts.com. And we have another show called The East Meets the West, where we discuss spaghetti westerns and shaw brothers movies so we hope you check that show out as well as always please leave us a review on itunes so that more people can find us and spread the word about then is now join us again next episode then
Disco Podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. Thank you.